Welcome to A Closer Look, a podcast that explores the ways in which the world we live in and how we engage with it can impact our health, happiness, and well-being. Now, here's your host, Dr. Robin Pickering, Professor of Health Sciences at Whitworth University. for joining us on A Closer Look. My name is Robin Pickering, and I am your host, Professor of Health Science, and I am talking this season about the reset. And we've been looking at how difficult health behavior change can be and how so many of us got a little off track over (laughs) the pandemic and are hopefully feeling really inspired to reset And we've been talking about what that looks like in various aspects of health. And I am really excited to introduce our guest today. Um, Dr. Michael McDonald is a professor in the Department of Community and Behavioral Health in the Elson S. Floyd College of Medicine at Washington State University and the director of Promoting Research Initiatives in Substance Use and Mental Health the PRISM Collaborative. He is a clinical psychologist who researches and focuses on using strategies like contingency management, which we will talk about today, and you can tell us uh, what that means, to improve care for people who experience um, addiction related to disparities. And you have a PhD in clinical psychology from WSU. You have an MS also in psychology from WSU Pullman. And a bachelor's in psychology and sociology from Gonzaga University. And all kinds of other stuff. But I was so um, interested in the work that you and your colleagues are doing um, because it, it really lines up with so much of what we've been talking about that behavior change, most of us know in a logical way what we're supposed to be doing. And most of us know what we want from our health. We want to be healthy. We want to have um, well-being and uh, have our families be healthy. But it is so hard sometimes. And people like you are, are finding ways to make that hopefully a little easier. So can you tell us about contingency management, what that means, um, and the research that you all have been doing over at WSU. Sure, Robin. Well, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. And uh, like most people over the last few years, I also feel that need to reset. (laughs) Um, And for a lot of people who did dry January or something like that, um, it's it's a New Year's resolutions. It's a time to reset. But for a lot of people, like you're saying, it's hard to get started. And then it's hard to keep it going. Um, and so this contingency management is this is an intervention that was developed specifically for addiction to help people uh, change change their, their behavior related to drug and alcohol use. Uh, it also works great for smoking. It also works, it really works well for anything that you have to sort of deal with on a day-to-day basis. So, you know, it's uh, we could, we've used incentives in healthcare for things like vaccination, um, but contingency management is an evidence-based, incentive-based intervention for, for behaviors that you really are a struggle day-to-day. So a lot like what you're talking about. 
Um, Quick question. Uh, so lots of us, when we hear the word contingency, yeah, think, yeah. oh, a yeah, different yeah. plan yeah, or yeah. a different backup. Yeah. Yeah. How is contingency, the way you're using it, yeah. different from that? Exactly. So that's a wonderful question. So contingency means just in our context, really, you get a reward or you don't. And so a lot of our colleagues actually call contingency management motivational incentives. And that makes just a lot more sense um, and in terms to most folks. And so the way contingency management works is you it's a reward based intervention or for those of uh, those of you who knew about like BF Skinner or um, remember your psychology 101 class. If you took that, maybe even a high school psychology class, the idea that you get a reward after you engage in a behavior and then that behavior increases after that. So, you know, you get something great, you get a pat on the back um, when you get your homework done. So you're more likely to do your homework in the future. Uh, so that, that whole idea of, of reward is really and re, what we technically call a reinforcer is what we're bringing um, to folks. So the contingent part just really means that, um, that you get the reward when you engage in the behavior and you don't get it when you don't. So we don't do punishment or have any negative sort of consequence for folks um, when we do this intervention in clinical work. Uh, but but, they're, but we, we only give out that reward when the person engages in the behavior they're working on. So that's the contingent part. The management part is just we're trying to manage, help a person manage their health, basically. Okay, so somebody comes in mm-hmm. with a um, identified issue mm-hmm. with drug use, a problematic drinking, and you have some sort of immediate reward, mm-hmm. or how is the reward mm-hmm. structured? Yeah, it's a great question. So in, in addiction treatment, the way we do it, so let's just say in alcohol treatment, the way that we do it is a person comes in, uh, they, uh, we, we do an assessment of course, and all that kind of stuff and make sure we understand what's going on, come up with a treatment plan. And if contingency managed part, part of that treatment plan, a person comes in in a typical model two times a week and they come in and they do uh, a urine test. And so we, they go in and they give a urine sample. We can test that, um, sample right away, right on site in the clinic. And then we can tell whether or not the person's used alcohol in the last few days. If the person hasn't used alcohol, if the if the result is consistent with them not using in the last few days, they get a reward. And in our case, it's a tangible reward. And in the pandemic, we really moved towards e-gift cards. So a person gets an e-gift card. And usually in a typical contingency management intervention, every time you come in, you get about a $10 gift card. But it rapidly, what we want to teach people is and want to help support people in who are who have an abstinence goal, who have a goal where that they don't want to drink anymore. What, what we try to do is really reward them the longer that sort of streak goes. The longer they're abstinent, the more they get of a reward. So it starts at $10, and every, maybe every week that you're abstinent, every week that you have you come in and give those negative urine drug urine alcohol tests, sorry, you, you're going to get an extra $2. And so that just keeps adding up and adding oh. up and adding up. And so by the end of the 12 weeks, so we usually do this intervention for 12 to 16 weeks, uh, maybe we need to do it a little longer for some folks. Right. Um, but when we, it ends up costing about $500 or so in incentives for a person who's absent the whole time, for a person who's just never has a slip up is really, and seems to really respond to the reward-based intervention. So the reward then is, is universal. It's basically... It can be. Okay. Yeah. But you're finding this to be an effective way that, that for $10 and motivation to do so that people yeah. will abstain. Um, and tell me a little bit about why you chose that 12 week. Cause I know in a lot of the interventions that I've looked mm-hmm. at, something seems to be fairly, and I, I know scientists don't like word like magical, <laughs> but something yeah. seems to either, either 
be particularly there seems to be efficacy mm-hmm. somehow in that 12 week mm-hmm. um, stretch. True. So tell us about yeah. 12 week and behaviors. So I think the, the one thing we know is that for that, there's that 28 day that people mm-hmm. sort of talk about that month or so of, of consistent behavior change. And that's pretty close to what we think in science really dictates when you've, when you've sort of broken a behavior, the difference with addiction. So if you think about like exercise or something like that, we're trying to get acquire a new habit. That's really important. When we move to things like addiction, what we use, we used to think, you know, addiction, some people believed it was kind of a moral failing. Other people said it was just a choice. What we know now from science is it's a chronic relapsing condition for most people. That requires attention and requires not that people have to be in treatment their whole lives or need a therapist their whole lives or need to get, you know, rewards their whole lives, but for like something like contingency management, but really that it's something that needs care and attention and, and, and people need to cope with her and live with and be in recovery with their whole life. Um, and, and so, and so now that we think about addiction as a chronic relapsing thing, we really don't want to stop doing treatment too early. Um, and so that 12 weeks I think is the minimum. The, what we, there's some new studies that have come out more recently that have shown that if it can be, the longer it is, the better, up to like six months. That's very consistent with literature on inpatient, going for inpatient treatment for addiction. We really find little evidence that 28-day addiction programs really seem to work or are effective in patient programs. They may help a person who's unsafe and needs to be detoxed from a thing like alcohol or opioid drugs. Um, but outside of that, that doesn't seem to have a really long impact on their, on their, on their addiction, long-term addiction treatment outcomes. When a person stays in an inpatient facility for like six months, that has a much better, more prom, a more promising long-term outcome. So we actually think the 12 weeks is kind of a sweet spot. I also think that's kind of a way a lot of our funding for research is driven, <laughs> including right. in drug companies. Uh, we definitely, they typically do 12 week randomized control, placebo controlled trials. Right. Um, and so that's kind of where that, I think partially that 12 weeks comes from. So for sure, we know that the minimum for this intervention is 12 weeks to help a person cope in the long term with addiction but probably up to six months is even better. And we're just starting to do research on, on the, those longer interventions now. So if I was a person who had a family member or personally was mm-hmm. experiencing problematic use or mm-hmm. um, something that would fall more into the addiction realm, I need to think at least about 12 weeks mm-hmm. committing to a behavior change, yeah. having some s- sort of incentivized yeah. behavior change mm-hmm. Um, through that 12 weeks at least. Yeah. I think the at least thing is for sure less than that. Maybe for smoking, there's some evidence that smoke, we use this intervention for smoking sensation. It's a really powerful way to help people stop using uh, along with nicotine replacement therapy, like the patch. And also with things like a medication called varenicline, which a lot are Chantex, which a lot of people find helpful. Um, and so, you know, we're doing work right now looking at actually using this intervention in combination with medicines to treat both alcohol and smoking at the same time. So, you know, maybe for smoking a little shorter, but for, for things like alcohol, um, and, and for, and for other drugs, really 12 weeks is probably definitely the minimum. Okay. So people listening are going to say, Hey, I might not be having a drug mm-hmm. addiction problem, but what about if I wanted to change my eating yeah. or maybe I yeah, just yeah. have some little behavior that yeah, bugs yeah. me? Yeah, yeah. Does it have to be an external person providing oh, that's a prize? that's a good question. Can I say, hey, if I can get yeah. to one week every week, I'm going to reward myself with X. Do you know, is it generalizable across mm-hmm. um, those 
different areas? Yeah, yeah. Great question. So uh, there's all kinds of ways to go in a response to that. But let me give you a story. So I was working over at Children's Hospital in Seattle, and I was a child psychologist there. And I'd heard about this researcher named John Roll over in WSU Spokane. And he was developed, was one of the people who developed this uh this, this intervention, contingency management. He's actually now my boss. Uh, and, and I read this article by John that talked about the things we're talking about today, how to design a contingency management program to impact your addiction. And so I was not reading it to, to, to really, um, I was thinking about it. Maybe this would be a help way to help sort of families stay engaged in treatment, um, and in care with, with our, with our services. Um, but then I started thinking, wait, my, my dad just had a, a big stroke. He had a massive bilateral stroke. He was, he was sort of um, uh, kind of really non-responsive, had a really hard time, took, took year, a year or so to recover from that, never fully recovered from that stroke. And my wife and I had just gotten married and we were talking about having kids and I'd gained 50 pounds in graduate school. Um, and I wasn't exercising. Before that, I was a big runner. I was really into running. And so I decided, you know what? I gotta, I gotta lose some weight. I gotta get healthy because my dad, um, you know, for whatever reasons he had his stroke, oh, probably it was related to his, his, his early life history of smoking, drinking and, and lack of, lack of exercise and just oh, maybe genetic cardiovascular risk. And so I knew I had those same risks and I knew I was kind of headed on that path. So I was reading Dr. Rule's article. And I thought, what the heck, maybe I could use this on myself. So I asked myself that question. <laughs> I said, honestly, Mike, can you hold yourself accountable? Um, and my goal was to exercise every day. And I said, no, you can't. Um, probably not. Uh, and actually I tried a couple times. So I think that's the first thing we think about and is, is you can try it on yourself. You can, you know, a lot of people love streak apps, right? so you can do right. a streak app. A lot of my friends do streak apps and you can give yourself a little reward every day. But I, I wish our producer was on camera here because he is, <laughs> is he uh, doing a are streak you on right what, now? three years of running Whoa. every day? Dang, man. Oh, you're going to love my story. So. Oh, you're going to love my story. You're going to love my story until about a year ago. Okay. So, so great. This is perfect synergy. So what I, my, my, my wife's not going to listen probably. So I'll say this, which is my now wife ears are and up, I have different opinions about my spending. Mm. And so what we do in contingency management, as I was mentioning, is we don't try not to punish people, but we hold them accountable. So so, and part of that is in agreement, right? Like we work together to hold, to hold that, that, ex so this is the external part. So if a person actually, you know, I talked how those rewards can sort of roll up into, they get bigger and bigger as you, as you keep that streak going. Well, what happens when you test positive is, is when it shows that you've used is you go, you don't get anything that time. You don't, that's the contingent part. You don't get a reward. And then you actually lose all those bonuses you've tracked up over time. So you, next time you come in and you submit a negative um, sample or shows you haven't used, you, 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 you go back to that $10. Okay. We have a little trick though, for letting you catch up right away because we don't want that relapse to be a slip, but there's a consequence. There's a, we don't, it's not technically a punisher or a punishment, but it's, there's a consequence. And again, that's to help people be accountable. So my system looked like this. I got a dollar a day for every day that I ran 20 minutes or more. And if I made it to $365, I got to keep all that money and I could spend it on whatever I wanted. And my partner couldn't tell me no and she couldn't <laughs> get guilt me or make you feel, you know, that was our agreement. But if I made it to 364 and I broke my leg and I couldn't run, she got all the money oh. and I had to pay, pay, 
I had to use the Tanya Harding approach. Actually, (laughs) God bless her. There was still, this is 20, this is a long time ago. So it's almost our 20th anniversary. Um, So we, she actually two, three days before I was at her mom's house and I was running on this beautiful trail that she lives in Victoria, lived in Victoria at the time in Canada. And I fell and I landed on these rocks and it right on my knees was horrible. And the next day, um, my wife was right next to me out on my run, running with me for my 20 minutes where I don't even know if I made it a mile. Aww. So, uh, yeah. So, okay. So here's, here's sort of the concept. So the, so that, that's a long answer to your question. And I'm, I'm going to sort of add a little bit extra, which is you got to do what you know is realistic for you. Like you got to do, and you can try it on your own, but don't give up. It's just like taking a medication. Don't give up, go back, try, try again, try again. Maybe you need that extra support. And then in addition to that, coming back to what you're saying um, about running streaks. So I then ran, have run every day for 15 years, except for one day I forgot, um, two years in between. So I had a running streak until I ripped up my knee skiing last year of about 13 years. So by the end of that year when I was exercising, I had already signed up for my first marathon. I had already, um, you know, bought a fancy running watch. I had already bought a, like subscribed to a couple running magazines. And so when those rewards went away at the end of the year, cause she, my wife wasn't going to keep paying me um, to <laughs> run. Uh, she, basically I had this other reason to keep doing, I had all these other re- uh, things in my life that were going to reward me, you know, just naturally for doing it. And so I think that's another important thing we try to talk about is, is this idea of contingency management and these motivational incentives. It's just to give that person a little push when they want, when they're thinking about behavior change, just to give that little push, and then to sustain it for a while until some of those natural rewards and sort of reasons why people care so much about about changing their behavior are starting to happen. It reminds me. Um, I know that you said child psychology. Mm-hmm. It reminds me of as a teacher with young kids, where you start with giving you know prizes mm-hmm. for every time they they do the correct behavior. And then you ease off of that when they find more external rewards. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I think I'm hearing you say that that's kind of how this works, or yeah, at least definitely. that the, the rewards yeah. become um, different over yeah. time. Yeah. And I think when we've done some that, good, great point. And I think for most people, that's how life works. That's so for a younger, overall kind of healthy psychologist, child psychologist working at a hospital who, you know, didn't have to deal with most of those social determinants of health, had a lot of privilege. You know, I could, I could change my behavior fairly easy using this intervention. And I probably, you know, a year, I just picked a year because it seemed like something to do a a reasonable amount of time. Well, an unreasonable amount of time, maybe. (laughs) Um, But, you know, it seemed like a period of time. But what we know for some people is, you know, this the idea that we could then take the rewards away, you know, that's, that's sometimes a struggle for people there. If you think of, and again, exercise is an important behavior change, but if you think about a person who's, who's been through addiction or been living with addiction for a while in their lives, they're pretty, there a lot of folks come to us and they're pretty scared at the end of that 12 weeks. And so we've talked a lot about Robin, how to like kind of thin that, how to change it, how to create a, a schedule that would be feasible for clinicians and for participants and patients, because a lot of patients by the end of that 12 weeks also at the same time now have a job. Now we're in a new relationship. Now are doing all these other things. And so they don't have time to come in twice a week to a clinic and do that quick little, you know, um, 
visit with us and get those rewards. And so we're trying to figure out ways to sort of maintain the schedule, that reward idea for people, that external motivators, um, because we really think that for some people, they may need that longer term. Um, and we're still trying to figure out who that is exactly. So the 12 weeks isn't magic and mm. it could be that individual differences for sure. really. Yeah. So, so finding some way to measure that yeah. in people that, yeah. Hey, how ready are you to yeah. let go of these, yeah. these kind of yeah. incentives yeah. week by week? Yeah. Um, that's great. And a question that came up and my, my guess is that some people, um, will listen to this and say, okay, you found this, this system that seems to work to address drug and alcohol and addiction with what I'm hearing sounds like about a $5 per, or sorry, $500 per mm-hmm. person mm-hmm. cost. Mm-hmm. And I think folks that know anything about addiction know what the community cost mm-hmm. is of addiction. Yep. But what do you say to the people who say, well, I don't use drugs or alcohol. Where's my prize for not doing that? And mm. I think some people will really have some resistance yep. to, to giving people prizes. Yep. Um, what do you say when people have that argument? Yeah. My first reaction is always like high five. Um, <laughs> yeah. same with me. Like, it's great. Um, you know, it's, it's a blessing that, that you don't, that you don't need this, and, and, and I, and I hear that, and, you know, we hear that we used to hear that, you know, Robin, we used to hear that concern a lot about 10 years ago, but man, have we all been through it with addiction? I mean, I don't know a single person and I know this is sort of my area, but I don't know if any, I mean, everyone's lives have been impacted by addiction, whether it's through the opioid ep- epidemic. Um, you know, we have this huge increase, although it hasn't really gone down of, of, of methamphetamine use in Spokane. That's, that's on the rise. People are dying now for methamphetamine at alarming rates. Um, and, and we, and many of us have, you know, struggle with addiction, um, in our family for alcohol and is alcohol and, you know, tobacco cigarettes are the most commonly used drugs. So, you know, I think, I think there's a lot more empathy uh, for people with addiction and a lot more personal experience, I think that people have, but certainly that's still something that comes up. So, you know, the idea here is that you wouldn't use this. It's sort of like you wouldn't use a cancer drug on a person who doesn't have cancer. That doesn't make sense. Why would you do that? So you wouldn't use an, a, a treatment like this with a person who doesn't have an addiction because they don't need it. It's not, this is a, the, you know, we're trying to sort of refocus and, and to think about contingency management. That's part of the reason we haven't changed the name um, really is because we want it to sound like a medical, it all sounds like a business management strategy really, but um, we <laughs> want it to sound like a medical thing because right. it is a medical intervention. Um, it's a, it's just like a psychotherapy that you'd use for depression. Um, you wouldn't give a psychotherapy for depression to somebody who's not depressed or someone who doesn't never had a struggle with depression. So I think that to me is the way I sort of am thinking about it now. This is a, a tool for addiction that can really help save people's lives. Can, like you said, can really, um, do things like a study. We found it in Seattle. We found a huge reduction in the amount of days that people were hospitalized for psychiatric reasons. Um, and so if you think the cost savings there in the, in the, you know, the impact on that person and their family in such a positive way from such a humble intervention, it's a, it's a pretty mind blowing thing. So yeah, for sure. I get, you know, and of course with people with addiction, many people have that lived experience and they quit on their own. Um, in, in fact, right. Only 10 to 25% of people with addiction ever get any treatment, including Alcoholics Anonymous or a self-help wow, group. 10%. So yeah. So it's, it, it's, we have to do better. Right. Um, and so, you know, really this is a unique thing. 
The other thing I speak to people about is if you have loved ones who've been in addiction treatment or have refused to go, this is an option. This is a much more appealing option than, than, than some of the addiction oh, treatments absolutely. that we have available um, in terms of that fact that it sounds like something you might want to do. Um, it doesn't sound, it's positive, it's encouraging, and it also works for a lot of people. And so I think that's, we are really in addiction care. We've done a great job on opiate addiction treatment. We now are offering some really powerfully, really wonderful life-saving treatments now. Um, and we need to spread that sort of, uh, evidence-based or science-based approach and, um, meeting really to other drugs like alcohol and, and stimulant drugs and things like that, which contingency management we know works for. Well, and if you think from a return on investment perspective, mm. even if, even if at bare minimum, somebody did that for 12 weeks and then started using mm-hmm. again, 12 weeks of non-use yeah. can be life saving. Definitely. So yeah. even, even if the measure of, of success, I think it could be subjective as well. Yeah. So I have to tell this story because when we talked before, you talked about how you had recently been on a podcast (laughs) and that it turned out that it was with David Cross, Uh, who I'm a big fan of Arrested Development. So those of you listening will know David Cross from lots of things, one of them being Arrested Development, he plays Tobias. But you did a podcast with, with him, unknowingly, I heard, But um, one of the things that really stood out when I listened to that podcast was there was kind of a flippant comment about addictive personality Mm. in this idea that, oh, well, I have to, you know, be careful because I have an addictive personality. Mm. And I think a lot of people kind of throw that around Mm -hmm. as um, a, a thing that exists. I was really impressed with the way that you tackled that. So if you wouldn't mind, um, what do you say to people when, when they say, Oh, I have to be careful because I have an addictive personality or addiction runs in my family or, or similar, similar things like that. How do you address those inquiries? So yeah, no, that's great. Um, I, uh, that I can't remember exactly what I said, so I hope I can live up to those expectations. <laughs> um, the, uh, so yeah, so I mean, I, first of all, the idea that anyone's personality is pathological, I have a problem with, we have a whole in psych, in psychiatry and psychology, we have a whole kind of list of diagnoses to diagnose people with personality disorders, we call them. And, and a lot of people have problems with certain ways that they interact with others or certain ways they think about themselves that are, that we call that. But so I just don't like the idea of pathologizing anyone's personality. I feel like that's sort of that self-fulfilling prophecy idea that if I, if I have an addictive personality, well, then I'm going to be addicted to things. If it protects you from, you know, choosing not to use drugs or alcohol and that doesn't, you know, then that's not a bad thing. But I think sometimes people set themselves up for this all or nothing thinking about things like that. The same with genetics. Um, for a lot of us who have a genetic predisposition for addiction, which there definitely is a genetic predisposition for addiction, do we know what genes there are involved? We know some of them. Do we have any way of like doing a genetic test and saying, oh, you're going to have an addiction and you're not? Um, no, we don't. So those are all things we do know family history is correlated. We know there's certain genes that are sort of involved, a pool of genes that are probably involved in addiction. And so people are more likely to be predisposed to addiction based on their family history than others. And those folks should be definitely be more careful Um, but, but yeah, really, we know that there's certain things that are cause an addiction and they're not your personality. They're probably things that some parts of your personality that people might think about. 
Um, and, and so we sort of have a pretty good understanding. We're trying to do better because it's probably more complicated than that, but people get addictions for a lot of different reasons. So uh, we, but we think there's three reasons that sort of all go together and we're doing some research now where we're trying to figure out with contingency management, what predicts, you know, who does well after they get the intervention based on this sort of same model. So the three things are one's called, uh, executive functioning or what we call delayed discounting. Okay. So those are more fancy words like contingency management, not fancy, but confusing words. So, uh, the, the, it's the marshmallow test. So if you remember the marshmallow test or if any of you are listening, have heard, remember the marshmallow test, that's where they bring those poor kids into the, into <laughs> a research lab where some psychologist <laughs> like me tortures them by offering them one marshmallow now or two marshmallows in five minutes. And so for many of us, we're like, give me the marshmallow now. <laughs> and if for, for, and for other people, we're like, you know what? I'll wait for, I'll wait for 30 minutes. Cause I want six marshmallows. And I'll just sit back and I won't get anxious or worried about it. I'll just wait for my marshmallows. So surprise, surprise, people who are more likely to have an addiction are one marshmallow people. They're people who, when we do a test that's like that marshmallow test, we have all kinds of fancy tests that we do. But that when people have a hard time sort of thinking about the future, like, and so for you, you know, being a college professor, you know, you've, you know, you've worked with college students, you know who those people are versus those students who like are like, yeah, I've got the syllabus out of outlined it. I know I've already prepared for my final versus that you know, person who walks in in their sweats and is half asleep and is just thinking about how they're going to get through class today. So for people who have that, what we call issues with discounting or issues with sort of future and horizon planning and, and sort of thinking what holding out for, 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 for their long-term goals or their short-term people are more impulsive. I guess I could have just said right away that those folks are more likely to develop an addiction. And when they get an addiction, we may have to treat that impulsivity, right? We may have to focus on that instead of other things maybe to help them. The second one is negative emotions. And of course that's not like a, it's not, again, sometimes the psychologists tell you things that are obvious. Um, and that's what we study. So one is just negative emotionality. So anxiety, depression, trauma history, all those things, people are more likely who, to be, who, have, who experience those things to then have a problem with, with drugs or alcohol. At the same time, most people who have issues with those things don't have problems with drug and alcohol. So, but we know that not only when, you know, for all of us who have gone home and had a drink after a stressful day, you, that resonates with you. It immediately causes your, your stress to go down, right? But in the long term, that then can become a problem. So that negative emotionality is, is, is one. The other one we call, and this is a even fancier, it's incentive. We call it incentive salience, but that's like how much really that is like how much you're drawn to a drug. So, you know, when you think about like drug cues, so for those of you who are smokers, you know, you know, or have been a smoker, you know what I'm talking about. It's like that certain smells, certain images, you know, will just set off those urges to smoke. And so for people who have developed sort of have a lot of those once have a lot of that are drawn to that drug or are more likely to have a positive experience with the drug. So for all of us parents out there and, and then all of us who are older can think back to the first time we might have had something to drink or, or who are worried about our kids maybe growing up to have a problem with alcohol. One thing we know predicts, especially for people who are at a genetic risk, their long-term addiction is when they have, they drink, can drink a lot of alcohol, but not have negative adverse effects. So a young person who maybe goes to a party, doesn't know that they're drinking, this red stuff has a ton of alcohol and knows it has alcohol. They drink like, you know, they drink a bunch of that punch and it's loaded with alcohol. 
and they just stroll around and they don't throw up. They don't have a hangover the next day. That person's much more likely to go on and have an addiction. Not that they will. Most people who have that happen will not go on and get, develop an addiction, but they're more likely to develop a problem with alcohol because they can get more of that drug into their body and into their brain without having a negative effect. And so that's what we call incentive salience. So it's those three things. It's sort of impulsivity, how much you can process a drug and how much then once you'd start using it, you're cued. All those things get that those things that are associated with it sort of are, are exciting to you or or even this is not even conscious, but exciting to you or draw you to that drug. And then the last one is that na- those negative emotions. So those are the things we know sort of help not help, that's not the right word, but lead to developing an addiction or putting a person at higher risk. And then additionally, those are the things that make it really hard for people to stop using. One thing I think is really interesting that you're pointing out is this notion that uh, of processing. You talked about processing. Mm-hmm. And um, could you talk a little bit about the way in which men and women process substances differently? And are there any predispositions that come along with sex Mm -hmm. and um, does that uh, make a difference in the treatment that you all administer? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, And like we talked about before, I'm not a a gender or sex expert when it comes to alcohol, but it's important for all of us who do alcohol or addiction treatment to, to understand that those differences, which are key. So there's a bunch of layers to this. And of course, this is, you know, this is a, a question that as scientists, we're really trying to understand better Um, and what we know is that on average women can engage in, this is the bad news for women, um, or good news. I don't know if it's good or bad. (laughs) Um, I probably shouldn't say it's a good, bad news. Um, so basically women uh, are more likely to have negative health effects from drinking than men. And so like a lot of you, we often see in the, in CNN or on the new, whatever your news outlet is, you'll see one story, like literally one day, a story came out that said red wine's great for people. It's help, you know, moderate amounts of red wine are great. The next day, another story came out, says champagne, don't drink champagne, you'll get cancer. So there's so many of these large studies that look at people's drinking behavior, especially moderate levels of drinking, which I would define as for a woman is probably uh, three or less drinks a day, seven or less drinks in a week. Uh, and then for men is four or more drinks in a day regularly, right? And 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 that's about seven to eight or nine more drinks a week. So th- those that kind of what we think is not any drinking less than that has historically been seen as health okay for your health. But what we the more we do research and look at this issue of of sex assigned at birth, the more we realize that actually women drink who drink the same amount of alcohol are likely on average to have a higher blood alcohol content than men. And we think that's because on average women are smaller than men. And also this is one where I just, this, this is one where I feel weird saying it, but men have more, um, have more, have more, uh, water. And so on their, in their body. And so men basically men are, men are on average larger biologically. And therefore they, the same, that same dosage of alcohol is going to affect a woman on average different than a man. Now that's, again, that's of course going to be, there's overlap in men and women and, and all those things. And this isn't for everybody, but basically the, the, the two trends that we're seeing in research and historically this first trend has been true consistently, which is all the negative health consequences of alcohol tend to happen in women at a lower dose of al- a lower amount of drinking than men. Um, at the same time, the rates of problematic drinking in women have increased 
and are now approaching, starting to catch men. So before, you know, historically men engage in three times more problematic drinking than women. And that's now gone down to two times more. So men are still engaging more problematic drinking. However, uh, women are catching up. And so there's, there's those, those are kind of two things I'd think about. Um, when I think about gender and, and drinking. That's really helpful. So it sounds like we have some good ideas about a treatment oh. approach that, that might not only help people, but, but get people to the next stage mm-hmm. of working on some of this stuff. And it sounds like there are, there is at least some buy-in in terms of insurance. Am I understanding that correctly? Or are we still in process? There? Very small amount, okay. um, <laughs> which I'm, I'm glad to, to talk about, but um, yeah, so go ahead. Oh, um, I was hoping for better news there. Yeah, no, it's not, <laughs> it's not great news, but we're yes, hoping we're hoping it's going to change. Insurance is on board. It, it is. It is good news in Washington. I think we're headed in the right mm. path. Federally, we're kind of stuck, and we need to we need to sort of we need some we we really need some policy reform to to be able to use this intervention. And really, the di- the reason is that it involves giving patients money, right? Or not money, but t- get tangible Incentives. things, either prizes or gift mm. cards, and um. And that's just kind of unusual in addiction treatment. It's something that totally happens in private with private insurers, right? For a lot of us, we fill out one of those health surveys and we get a reward, or we get rewarded with free gym membership if we if we're you know as part of our health plans. Um, and and but for folks, you know, most people who are living with an addiction and seeking treatment are enrolled in Medicaid, and the federal government's very worried that mm. medical providers could make money off of using incentives. So if I said, hey, Robin, come in to my clinic and I will pay you a $100 gift card to get a free health assessment. So it's no cost to you. In fact, it's $100 I'm going to give you. And then you came in and I thought, oh, well, you know, since you're here, I'll just do that test on you and I'll bill for that test and that test and that test right. and that test. And there, outside of the addiction space, there's been billions of dollars of Medicaid fraud doing using incentives in health and with Medicaid enrollees. And so, right now, sort of our policy battle is twofold, and, and sort of our struggle and where we need support is twofold. And at the federal level, is one trying to figure out a way, which we think there is a thin path right now to be able to use this intervention with people who are um, pay, having their care paid for by Medicaid. And then, and so we think there's a clear path. And so we're working with Washington, Montana. We just started working with Wisconsin. California is doing a huge project on contingency management um, because we've got this thin line path through. We want a bigger path that still is responsible and still prevents weight, fraud, fraud, waste, and, and abuse of of this because fraud can happen and, right. and it likely will happen because people are people make mistakes and people make bad sometimes make bad decisions. But but for the most part, we don't think that's likely to happen on a large scale and we have protections for to prevent it. Then the other one is we really need the federal government to step up and fund the incentives. Mm-hmm. Because if you think about a typical healthcare, right, right, there's not usually funding unless it's carved out specifically for things like incentives. We're usually funding things like tests, prescriptions, pharmacy bills procedures, things like that. So, well, and we, I mean, some would argue that we have a model that's really set up on sick care mm-hmm. and not health care mm-hmm. and that shifting that sort of mind frame yeah. is a process yeah. that's yeah. unrolling yeah, over time, sure. hopefully. Yeah. So if I'm listening to this and I think, oh my gosh, I, my husband's struggling or mm-hmm. I'm struggling, or I've mm-hmm. got a niece or a nephew that's struggling, maybe this could work for them how would I go about accessing that? Mm-hmm. Great question. So if that if your loved one's an adult 
and they're struggling primarily with alcohol problems, they can reach out to our team um, at WSU. And we we actually have a new research clinic, addiction research clinic. So it's a clinic like any other clinic. Um, all the care there is funded by research studies. And uh, we provide contingency management along with medic. Some some of our studies involve also medication. The treatment or the intervention is is at no cost to the participant um, who's in the study, and um, and so we have that available here uh, in Spokane if you meet certain criteria for for the study. So that's a study. Um, if you're struggling with stimulant, if you have a loved one who's struggling with stimulant problem, so they're using methamphetamine or cocaine primarily. Uh, if they're, if they're struggling with that, we actually have programs now in Washington state that are doing contingency management. That's really exciting that we're working with. So I know Rockwood here is, is doing, has a program in their addiction clinic. Um, and there's other pro in the state is serious. We're applying for a Medicaid waiver right now to get funding. So there are 15 clinics or so, I think throughout the whole state. So there's only 15 in the whole state that are doing this. If you're a veteran and, uh, and you're listening from in Seattle or the Seattle area, um, I'm not for sure about the Spokane VA, but uh, the Seattle VA and many, most other, many other larger VAs in the country offer contingency management as part of their uh, part of their treatment there. Oh, that's amazing! And when you say WSU, you're meaning the Washington State but, University yes, Medical you. School here yes, in yeah, Spokane. Yes. Perfect. So folks could go on that mm -hmm. website, reach out, mm -hmm. and get connected, assuming that they qualify for yes. the study, and mm -hmm. that could be. Um, accessible to them. Oh, that's really exciting. I know that somebody is listening right now thinking, okay, this is, yeah. this is something that I could try. Um, I'm so glad that you're here to share that. And I end every show with the same question. Mm -hmm. And that is my endless quest to combat the misinformation that is just swarming all over the internet and elsewhere is... The question of if there is misinformation that mm -hmm. people have about your field or your area of study that just continuously is a thorn in your side mm -hmm. that you want to clear up with this platform, mm -hmm. what would you say? Uh, that's a good one. Um, we have, like I was saying earlier, we have a few. Uh, so <laughs> we, um, so yeah, I mean, it's just I just want to offer the message of hope to people that we a lot of people I I meet with and I sit down with and. They tell me, you know, Dr. McDonald, I've been through like, I've been to 20 inpatient facilities and I, or, or our people come up to me at, at church and they say, Hey, you know, Mike, I, I got this problem and I, I just don't want to talk about it. I'm embarrassed talking about it. Or I don't, I don't really, feel, or I have a, a cousin who has this problem. There's no hope for him. Like I, I want to, you know, we have so many new things we're doing to treat addiction. There's already wonderful resources out there like AA or Narcotics Anonymous that have saved the lives of millions of people that resonates with you, you know, give it a try, um, see if it works. If it doesn't, there's lots of other options. If you are struggling with an opiate use disorder or you're using opioids like fentanyl, um, or, or heroin or, or prescription drugs, we have lots of really very effective treatments, um, that, that people can get now for that. And those are widely available in our community. And then, and then if you're struggling with, you know, alcohol, I don't want to make it sound like this intervention we do is the only thing. It's not the only solution. It doesn't work for everybody. You know, there's lots of wonderful treatments for alcohol use disorders out there and for alcohol problems out there. Um, and also there's lots of great websites. Uh, a wonderful website is uh, NIAAA.org, N-I-A-A-A, sorry, not .org, .gov. Um, and, and that's the National Institute of Alcohol um, Abuse and Alcoholism. And that's the federal agency that's in charge of 
sort of research and, and disseminating fact-based information about alcohol. And that they've got a wonderful website that has a lots of information, including some of the stuff we talked about today um, in terms of the way alcohol affects men and women differently. Um, and a lot of great treatment resources too. So the main thing is just that there's a lot of hope. I'm really excited about the next five to 10 years or the next year even, but the next, certainly the next five to 10 years in this addiction space. And I think we're, we're a lot of us are terrified by hundred thousand people died from a drug overdose. You know, the alcohol use is the number one, um, cause of preventable death amongst people 20 to 49, and, but, so that's really, it's hard to hear those kind of numbers, uh, especially given my job, but also for those of us who've just been through this pandemic this last few years, but there's a lot of hope. I think we're doing so many great things. There's access to care that never was there before, and it's only going to keep getting better. So, oh, that's a hopeful, that's a hopeful way to end. And I, I really thank you, Dr. Michael McDonald, um, from Washington State University um, School of Medicine here in Spokane. Um, thank you so much for joining us and for you out there for listening. Thanks for listening to A Closer Look. Visit us on social media and wherever you go to find your podcasts. Be sure to join us next time as Dr. Robin Pickering and her guests take A Closer Look.